In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, for those of you who uh, haven't been able to be with us these last few weeks, we find ourselves in the third week of an Advent series. We've been focusing on the family. That would be the Holy Family. And uh, so the very first week, uh, we, uh, we journeyed to Nazareth, and we listened to the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary and her inspiring response, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Last week, uh, that same angel led us to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown, and we, uh, we watched the, sus- the surprising transformation that happened in him. This week, we're returning to Mary's story in Luke. Um, after Mary received word that she was pregnant, you can well imagine that she was confused, uh, maybe even terrified. Um, whom would she talk to about all of this? And it may be that Mary remembered something that Gabriel had told her before leaving. He had said that her cousin Elizabeth was also with child, which of course was miraculous because she was beyond childbearing years herself. It seems clear in Luke's gospel that Mary not only knew Elizabeth, but that there was some kind of close relationship uh, there. Maybe um, an older cousin. Uh, Mary maybe referred to her as Auntie Liz. Who knows? Um, It was not unusual for couples in that day even today, who are unable to have children, to treat their nieces and nephews as their own. And so maybe that's why Mary felt the way she did about Elizabeth. Whatever that relationship, Luke is clear. When Mary discovered that she was pregnant, she went with haste to visit her. The fact that she went on a nine-day journey over perhaps three mountain ranges to speak to her speaks volumes about how she was feeling. She longed for someone who she could trust, someone who she could share her story with, someone who would help her to make sense out of it all. Now, if Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, were like some of the couples that I have known who have struggled with issues of infertility, it's very possible that Elizabeth would have gone through several miscarriages before this which would help to explain why Elizabeth went into seclusion for the first five months of her pregnancy. And in that case, while, of course, uh, Mary needed Elizabeth, maybe it was a two-way street. What strikes me first about this special pairing, though, is that Elizabeth functions as a mentor for Mary. She is a source of encouragement, a source of wisdom, And I wonder if we don't all need an Elizabeth at some point in our lives. Somebody who comes along and understands and affirms us. And similarly, I wonder if at some point in our life we don't need to be an Elizabeth to some younger person. It could be part of God's purpose in our lives to mentor, to coach those who are coming up behind us. Uh, My colleague Adam Hamilton, a wonderful Methodist minister out in Kansas, talks about somebody who functioned like that in his life. Uh, The guy's name was Bob Robertson. He was the senior minister of the church where Adam served as the youth minister. Um, 
And when Adam graduated from seminary, of course, the bishop was sending him off to his first call. Uh, Bob called up Adam on the phone. He said, when things are going well, you will likely find it hard to celebrate with other pastors. Because the reality is, we pastors can be a little insecure about hearing about other people's successes. He said, when that happens, I want you to call me. I will be your biggest cheerleader. And when something happens and it's not going well, I want you to call me too. I will always be in your corner. So I'm wondering this morning who has played the role of Elizabeth in your life? Somebody who has been there for you. And conversely, I'm wondering if you can call to mind someone younger, somebody who perhaps could use some encouragement or investment of your time. Could be somebody in your family. Could be somebody at work. I have often thought that the church is a great place for these kind of relationships. I mean, after all, it is one of the very few intergenerational communities left in our culture. In fact, I have seen that happen here. We used to have this group of women here we called the Yaya sisters. Uh, older seniors, they were always there for each other. They were involved in everything here. Well, sure enough, a little time later, along comes this next generation of women, Paula Robinson, Kathy Moore among them. And uh, we referred to them as the Yitz, that is, Yaya's in training. <laughs> I think of the effect that some of our Youth advisors and youth directors have had on some of our young people. Now, many of them in college. I think of a Ruth Butters who went on so many mission trips and this past summer worked in one of those mission sites. I think of the effect that some of you who are senior highs now can have on younger mid-highs or kids in elementary school when they come to vacation Bible school or to Whirl. Just noticing them, just remembering their name, what a difference that can make. I read about this one couple in a congregation. They had great musical gifts. They sang in the choir. Somewhere along the way, they lost their only daughter. I think it was back in 2004. And they said it was like the music just stopped in their life. Until a number of years later, when their pastor asked them if they would consider coaching some other parents who had lost their children. And after praying about that, that's exactly what they did. They began to help others navigate that difficult journey. And a funny thing happened. They said as they helped others, their joy began to return. In fact, it wasn't long before they were singing in the choir again. Or I think of one woman, she is perhaps now in her mid-80s, who has probably informally uh, mentored dozens of young men and women along the way. And this is how she describes that role. She says, I simply listen to these young men and women and encourage them. If they ask for advice, I give it, sparingly. Mostly, we just share our lives. She says, I'm working with a young woman now who looks at me like a grandmother. But I so cherish the friendship. The parts of her life that she shares reminds me of things in my own life years ago. I think of a Barbro Somali from our congregation who has mentored dozens and dozens of social workers in Royal Oak. 
This is the way it works. It blesses the one who is being mentored, but also the one who is mentoring. And so Mary finds herself at the doorstep of Elizabeth. And can you imagine the effect that Elizabeth's first words had on her? Not once, three times in those opening words, she tells Mary that she is blessed. You are blessed among all women. Your child is blessed. And I'm wondering if Mary was really feeling blessed at that point. I mean, after Gabriel's terrifying announcement, she had just spent nine days traveling with that secret strapped to her like a backpack. Along the way, what is she thinking? Is she wondering about the people in the neighborhood and how will they talk about her when they found out she was pregnant out of wedlock? Is she wondering, I wonder what Joseph is going to say when I tell him the good news. You and I know some of the horrible things that she had to do, go through being the mother of Jesus, how not long after his birth they had to flee to Egypt because King Herod was out to kill the child. Think of all the ridicule that she heard people talking about him during his ministry. And then, of course, finally at the end of his life, where is she? She is standing at the foot of a cross watching her only son be crucified. Some blessing, huh? This is what led William Barclay. I almost called him Charles Barclay this morning. <laughs> William Barclay once talked about the paradox of blessedness. Look, when you and I talk about being blessed, it is usually associated with a life of comfort and ease. We think about a home, a family. We think about a good job. We think about health and wealth. Mary's blessedness had nothing to do with material things. It wasn't born out of any security or physical well-being. Mary's blessedness came from being a part of God's plan, being used by God for a higher purpose. The piercing truth, writes Barclay, is that God does not choose a person for ease and comfort and selfish joy, but for a task that will take all that the head and heart and hand can bring to it. It's true throughout the scriptures. Think of Abraham in the, in the book of Genesis. God says to Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you have ever known behind, your home, your family, your job. I want you to go to a place that you have never been before. And by the way, you're blessed. Think of the people that Jesus called blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungry now, who weep now. Blessed are you when people revile you and say bad things about you. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you are blessed and you don't even know it yet. Because God is going to use even your misfortunes for something good and God will be with you. So maybe we should be a little more careful when we say, I am blessed. Or when we wish God's blessing on someone, those blessings may well come with challenges and adversity. Again, they are not about ease and comfort. They are about the joy of being used by God for God's purposes. And so Mary responds to Elizabeth's words by saying, my soul 
magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Because joy, unlike happiness, can come independent of our circumstances. So Bill Beekner writes, happiness turns up pretty much where you would expect it. Good relationship, a rewarding job, a pleasant vacation. Joy, on the other hand, is as notoriously unpredictable as the one who bequeaths it. It comes not from changing our circumstances, but rather viewing them through the eyes of faith. So the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi. We call it the Epistle of Joy. Do you know where he wrote that letter? While he was sitting in a Roman prison cell, waiting for word as to whether he would be executed because of his faith. And under those circumstances, he says to the church for generations, rejoice in the Lord always. That's where that hymn that we often sing comes from. Adam Hamilton, the same one that I mentioned before, was in Malawi. He was there to determine whether his church could develop a partnership with some of the churches, churches there in Africa. In one of the villages, um, the people there, who incidentally earn about 55 cents a day, took him to a stream of green, salty water that they use for just about everything, for cooking and cleaning and drinking. And they asked if he and his church would help them to build a well so that their children might not get sick from the water anymore. After they had toured the village, um, they invited Adam's group back to the church. Adam says they stepped into this mud brick building, just a large room with holes in the walls where windows might go. And he said they erupted into worship. They sang songs of utter joy despite their circumstances because they believed that God had sent these people to help them get their children to safe water. And Adam said, would that Christians in the United States sang with that kind of exuberance and joy. Mary, despite all of the dangers and risks and upended dreams, magnifies the Lord and rejoices in her God. Joy, I am more and more convinced, is a choice that we make when we look at our present circumstances, trusting that God is at work even when we are not aware of it. And that is often found with the help of a mentor or a friend or a loving congregation who reminds us of this. Mary magnified the Lord. There is, however, one line in Mary's song that has always troubled me. She sings, He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. I love the first part of that. I'm counting on God to do just that, to care for the hungry. It's the second part that troubles me. Because as you know, compared to the world's standards, I am the rich. So I am wondering, what do Mary's words have to do with me? 
I take them as God's invitation to be used to fulfill the first words of that line, to help the poor walk away full. I am called to share my resources to pass along God's blessings. And in so doing, they go away full. And I discover what it really means to be blessed. That's why this Christmas, once again, we will give away our entire Christmas Eve offering. Let's face it, when we're out doing that last-minute shopping this weekend, there will be a time where you will think, what do I buy for somebody who has everything or can buy everything that he or she wants? If we are wise as parents and grandparents, at some point we get to the place where we say, how much is enough for my kids and how much is too much? Whose birthday is it anyway? That's why over the last six years we have helped to build a well in Kenya. That's why we have helped victims of human trafficking at Sanctum House. That's why we have helped injured animals uh, be rescued at the Howell Nature Center. That's why we have helped get young girls off the street by giving to Alternatives with Girls. And last year we helped refugees in Rohanga through a program that uh, Chris and Kay, who were here at the first service, helped us to discover. And that's why this year we will give away what we get all to the welcome in. I mentioned Adam Anne Hamilton's visit to Malawi. That was the year that their uh, Christmas offering went to those people. He said after the Christmas Eve service, uh, a man came up to him. He said, Adam, you know, I'm really an atheist. Um, I'm just here because some friends invited me. It was a beautiful service. The, the candlelight, the carols, it was all so lovely. But he said, what I really found amazing was that you gave away your entire offering to children in need. I'll be back. What do you give to a God who has everything? You take care of those who are closest to his heart. If we want to honor Mary's Magnificat, if we dare to sing along with her, then we too must find ways to send the hungry away full. Amen.